All right, um, grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Oh yeah, by the way, if you are new and this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Obed and I'm one of the leaders here. And again, it's a joy to have you join us this morning. Um, Turn to Galatians chapter 2. As a church, we've been in a study of Galatians and it's been brilliant. I've been enjoying it, and I can tell you guys have as well. Um, All right, as always, um, we're going to be reading. um, Our attention will be mainly on um, verses 11 through to 14, and we're going to read the passage and then dive right into our study for this morning. Something we like to do um, in our efforts to honor God's Word is to stand for the reading of it. So if you could do that, that would be great. Thank you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through to 14 reads, this is Paul writing, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful to be here this morning. Thank you for reminding us of your truths, who you are, what you've done. Um, As we study your word, I pray that you would um, not only fill our minds with more knowledge of you, but as a result of all of that, you would change us and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. For the last four weeks, if you've been with us as a church, we've dedicated um, our Sunday services and our community groups, which meet during the week, to the book of Galatians. Galatians, if you didn't know, is actually a letter. Um, It was written by the Apostle Paul to the followers of Jesus in an ancient region called Galatia, which is an area we recognize today as part of Turkey. The two questions the letter seeks to answer is, what is the gospel and how shall we live in light of the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, We've come to know that the gospel um, is an announcement. The gospel is news, is good news of what Jesus Christ has done through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. That is the gospel. And so Galatians wants to take the gospel of what Jesus has done um, and help us to know how we can live out that gospel. If you remember, in chapter 1 of the letter, Paul confronts the Christians in Galatia Galatia for turning from God to a different gospel. That's how he starts the letter. 
He starts the letter not with, hey, um, thank you, and you're awesome, and I love what you're doing. No, he starts the letter by saying, look, I am astonished that you are turning from the gospel. Following this confrontation, what Paul does is that he shares the story of how he became a Christian. And then he goes on to talk about the early years of his ministry after he became a Christian. And he does this for several reasons, but the main reason why he does this is to solidify his calling as an apostle and assure the Galatians that the gospel he's been proclaiming to them is not a counterfeit gospel, but the true gospel. And so, in a nutshell, what is chapter 1 of Galatians all about? The main thrust, and listen to me carefully, the main thrust of chapter 1 is Paul's defense of the authenticity and the divine origin of the gospel and his apostolic authority. At the beginning of chapter 2, the apostle Paul begins to recount a visit um, he made to Jerusalem. This visit to Jerusalem is what we looked at last week. If you remember last week, we discovered that the purpose of the visit was to meet with Peter, James, and John, who were the key leaders of the early church at the time. And he met with them so that they would validate his gospel message and his calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so how was that meeting in Jerusalem for Paul? What was the outcome? The meeting was a success. It resulted in Peter, James, and John affirming Paul's gospel and affirming his ministry to the Gentiles. They were very much like, look, yeah, Paul, you are called to the Gentiles and we fully support and endorse the gospel you've been preaching. That was our focus last week. This week, we're going to be looking at um, the next part of chapter 2. And we, we read it, you know, a minute ago. And as we read it, you may have noticed that it was a surprising um, incident that happened. And as I was studying it this week, it got me thinking about how the Bible um, captures the human experience in a way few other literature do. Like, the Bible is raw, everyone. Like, if you've spent time reading the Bible, you would know that it's raw, it's unfiltered, um, it doesn't merely give us a sanitized, idealistic version of history or human character. Instead, the Bible presents people, events, and moral dilemmas with, with like just this rawness um, that we don't expect. And I would say that our passage um, this morning is a great example of this. If I was writing the Bible, <laughs> putting together the Bible, I would probably not include this section. Because this section is basically two key leaders of the church having this confrontation. But it's there, and it's raw, and it's beneficial. And so, what exactly can we learn from this passage this morning? Um, what happened in Antioch? 
And what can we learn from it? And so the first thing we can learn from Paul's time in Antioch is this, that we are responsible for each other. We are responsible for each other. Um, Antioch is located in modern-day Turkey. It was an important city in the ancient world. Antioch was known for its size, its cultural influence, strategic location to trade routes. Um, While none of our modern cities can be a direct replica of ancient Antioch, Modern cities like New York, London, yes to London, Los Angeles, and Chicago can be likened to this great ancient city. Most people don't know this, but Antioch played a pivotal role in the early Christian church. After Stephen was martyred and Christians became victims of persecution, In Jerusalem, some Jewish Christians fled to Antioch. Um, Acts chapter 11, verse 20, tells us this. It says that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so what's happening here? What's happening here is um, um, Jewish Christians are being persecuted, In Jerusalem, they flee persecution. Some of them end up in Antioch. Rather than keeping a low profile to avoid further persecution, what do they do? What do they do? You can talk to me. They they continue to preach the gospel. And as they did that, what happened? Look at Acts 11.21. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That is crazy. They have fled persecution. They've ended up in Antioch. They're like, we are going to keep preaching the gospel. And as they do, God blesses their efforts and lots more people get saved. And guess what happened? This all resulted in the birth of a vibrant and diverse church in Antioch. Antioch was one of the first places Check this. This is cool. One of the first places where followers of Jesus were called Christians. The word Christian originates from the Greek word Christianos, which means follower of Christ. Antioch, because of its impact and it becoming the first place Christians were called Christians, eventually became a significant base for missionary activity, and it was where Paul and Barnabas were sent out for their mission work. The church in Antioch was multi-ethnic. It was made up of both Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. This diversity was awesome, but it sometimes created tension over how they should relate to one another, especially regarding Jewish laws. This is one of the reasons why Antioch became the central stage for the incident we'll be looking at this morning. And so after his time in Jerusalem, Paul traveled approximately 300 miles to Antioch. While Paul is in Antioch, he is joined by Cephas. 
If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know who Cephas is, but you'll probably be wondering why he's called Cephas here and not by his original name, Peter. And if you're new to Christianity, you're like, who is Cephas? Who is this guy? Let me do this. Let me just give us a brief history of this Cephas guy. Um, And this will help, absolutely help with our study this morning. All right? Cephas is the Aramaic version of the name Peter. Peter was originally named Simon. He was a fisherman. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. After their first encounter, what Jesus did was change Peter's name, right? Change Simon, right? That was his original name, to Peter, which means rock. Peter, along with James, John, and John, formed the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Peter, as you know, is one of those characters who is super impulsive, And further in nature, he walked on water, remember that? Made a profound confession that Jesus is the Christ, and not long after that, what did he do? He denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Oh my goodness, Peter. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter became a prominent leader in the early Christian church and played a key role in the spread of Christianity. While Paul was called to the Gentiles, Peter was called to take the gospel to Jews. Paul and Peter are among the most influential leaders within Christianity. They played a foundational role in establishing, spreading, and articulating the Christian faith during its formative years. And so, what happened when Peter arrived in Antioch? Look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow. All right, let's start with some Greek, all right? The verb oppose is antihistemi in Greek. It is a strong verb. Imagine antihistemi being used to describe an army ready to face their enemies in battle. And so, opposed here literally means stood against. Paul stood against Peter. This means that Paul opposed Peter by getting in his face. Not in a rude way, but it was definitely bold and speaking to him as an equal. This is crazy. Paul, he's this up-and-coming apostle, stands up to Peter, who is a legendary apostle, and he confronts him. What was the motivation behind Paul's actions? Why did he feel the need 
to oppose Peter. Look back at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The Greek word for condemned basically means to point out mistakes, blame, or criticize someone's actions. All right, I've got three kids, and they are amazing at so many things. But one of the things they're fantastic at is blaming each other. (laughs) Oh, I know where they get that from. Probably me. According to Paul, Peter's actions were wrong, and so he stood condemned, and he rebuked him. (laughs) The incident with Paul and Peter serves as a biblical example. There's so much we can learn from this, but one of the things that stands out in this moment is the necessity of rebuke among believers even if it involves confronting a prominent figure like Peter. If you are a Christian, you have a ton of responsibilities. But one of the responsibilities you have is to hold other Christians accountable, especially when a brother or sister in Christ acts contrary to the gospel. Some of you are listening to this going, yes, the topic of rebuke. Yeah, man, this is the Sunday I was waiting for. I love to rebuke. I'm a person of confrontation. (laughs) And some of you are hearing this going, oh no. I'm just not a person of confrontation. I'm so nervous right now. (laughs) In his article, The Ministry of Rebuke, Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung touches on the importance, reasons, and methods of rebuking within the Christian community. In the article, he points out that correction, um, when done out of love and with the intent of restoration, is an essential aspect of Christian discipleship and community. He also says this, there are two kinds of Christians Those who like to rebuke and do it often, you know who you are. And those who are scared to rebuke and never do it. And so, depending on what category you are in, this is his next advice. The irony, he goes on to say, is that both kinds of Christians are prone to sin. Those who enjoy giving a good rebuke are usually the least qualified to give one. (laughs) While those who would rather do almost anything else are often the very people who would serve the body best with their correction. And so where you are with all of this talk about rebuke, 
where you at with it, wherever you are, Scripture in a way exhorts Christians to look out for one another and at times that means correcting one another. Ray Ortland gives this wise um, wise instruction about rebuke. He says, an impulsive rebuke when covering is called for scars the body of Christ. A cowardly covering when a rebuke is called for weakens the body of Christ. But our gentle covering of a multitude of shortcomings with rare but brave rebukes for betrayals of the gospel strengthens the body of Christ. And so, we've learned that Paul's time in Antioch first helped us remember that we're responsible for each other. Um, Number two, Paul's time in Antioch will show us that we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Gentiles is non-Jewish, non-Jews. But when these men came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so Peter stood condemned because he decided to stop eating with Gentiles when certain men associated with James showed up. Why did Paul rebuke Peter for changing his eating habits and the people he ate with? What's wrong with that? Some people, and in our day and age, have strict food rules, right? Some of you are vegetarian, gluten-free, dairy-free, whatever free you are, all right? If you think about that in a similar way, Back then, and to still now, Jews had their own set of food laws. There were certain foods they couldn't eat. Gentiles, non-Jews, on the other hand, didn't follow any Jewish dietary laws, ate whatever they wanted, okay? Most of you are Gentiles here, okay? And as a result, you eat whatever you want, all right? Whatever you want, bacon, ribs. I'm thinking of bacon. I don't know why, but it came to mind. Bacon, whatever. And as a result, you eat whatever you want to do. And so what used to happen is that Jews weren't allowed to share a meal with non-Jews And the reason why is they just needed to be careful that if they shared a meal with a Gentile, it was just too risky. They might accidentally, right, grab a rib and eat it, okay? (laughs) And, And so they said the best thing to do is for us as Jews to not eat with non-Jews at all. 
but these laws weren't just about food. They also served to do this. They also served to maintain a clear boundary between the Jewish community and their non-Jewish neighbors. Listen to this. Avoiding shared meals with Gentiles was one way Jews preserved their distinct religious and cultural identity. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, he kind of flipped the script. In in one of the gospels, Jesus declared that what you ate wasn't what made you unclean. Peter, like many Jews, grew up thinking they shouldn't dine with non-Jews. But once he started following Jesus, things changed for him. And he began to be okay with eating with non-Jews. And this, this happened for him through an experience he had. In Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 talks about this crazy vision Peter had. It was this vision he saw. There was this large sheet falling from the sky, and on the sheet there were all sorts of creatures, animals, reptiles, and birds. And as he looked at this vision, this is what happened next. Look at Acts chapter 10, 13 to 15. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. All right? So much going on here. But this was the moment Peter realized what the gospel does. But he also realized that because the gospel is for all people everywhere who believe in Jesus Christ, he realized that he, he, he doesn't only, he's not only able or allowed to eat with non-Jews, but the gospel was for non-Jews as well. From then on, what Peter did was he would share meals and fellowship with people that weren't Jewish. And this practice, as I've said before, of eating with Gentile Christians spoke powerfully of the unifying effect of the gospel. Think about what the gospel has done. As I stand here and I look at every single one of you, I am like, man, the gospel is powerful. It brings people from all different cultures, all different backgrounds, and all different walks together. That's what the gospel has done. Think of what the gospel... Look, I am... I am British, okay? I was born in Ghana, West Africa. I moved to England when I was six years old. When I got to England, I could not have imagined or predicted that many years later, I'll be standing here in California, in America, preaching to a group of mainly Americans. It's crazy. This is what the gospel does. It brings people together from all different walks of life. 
and I'm pumped by that. You should be too. Gosh, it's crazy. Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is true, but surprisingly in Antioch, Peter was willing to put aside these convictions. He started acting in a way that didn't line up with what he believed. And so what made him change his mind? Why did he suddenly get cold feet about eating with Gentiles? Look at verse 12, all right? Look at verse 12. Um, It says, For before certain men came from James, um, he was eating with the Gentiles. but, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so what made him change his mind about eating with the Gentiles? It was because of the fear of certain men who came from James. Paul also refers to these men as the circumcision party. I love that. You've got the Democratic Party, you've got the Republican Party, then you've got circumcision party. (laughs) I told you the Bible was raw. (laughs) So funny. And so who was James and who were these men? the circumcision party that came from him. Um, James is described in the New Testament as the brother of Jesus. He was deeply respected, and as a result of this, this earned him the name James the what? James the Just. Okay? Over time, James emerged as a leading figure in the early Christian community in Jerusalem. And so, as you can imagine, because of who James was, the circumcision party, when they arrived on the scene, they carried a lot of weight. It's unclear if James actually sent these men. Maybe he did. Maybe he had heard about what was going on in Antioch, uh, you know, with the diversity and Jews and Gentiles sharing meals. And so what he did was he just sent these men to investigate. Or maybe he didn't send them at all. And these men could have been lying and had not been sent by James. Whoever they were, whatever their reasons for being in Antioch, their arrival had a negative impact on Peter. As soon as these men showed up, out of fear, what did Peter do? He drew back and separated himself. Out of fear. John Stott says this. Peter's withdrawal from table fellowship with Gentile believers was not prompted by any theological principle, but by craving fear of a small pressure group. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. Peter failed miserably. And this is not the first time Peter has, has, has failed to live up to expectations. This is not the first time he has gone against what he believed. This is not the first time Peter has allowed social pressures to push him towards compromise. 
this kind of behavior has been consistent, a consistent theme in Peter's life. This is the same Peter who told Jesus not to go to the cross. This is the same Peter, Peter who started sinking because he took his eyes off Jesus. This is the same Peter who sliced off the ear of the servant of the high priest when soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And this is the same Peter who blatantly denied Jesus when he had boldly, boldly confessed never to deny him. This is the same Peter. What can we learn from this? Salvation <laughs> and the filling of the Holy Spirit did not make Peter perfect. The old Peter was still there, just seen less often. Just like Peter, salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit didn't make you perfect. Like Peter, I am sure you know what it feels like to do something that you know is wrong. Like Peter, I'm sure you know what it feels like to allow social pressure to push you toward compromise in some way. How many of you can relate to Peter? <laughs> you absolutely can. Thomas Schreiner says this, no Christian reaches a point where he or she is without sin. And even if we are experienced Christians, we may sin in significant ways. Such realization humbles us, for we realize that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Some of you still believe the gospel but you fail to practice the gospel. You fail to live lives that are consistent with what you believe. James chapter 3, verse 2, James, whom we just talked about, says this, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's basically saying, no one is perfect. And we all stumble in many ways. So what have we learned from Paul's time in Antioch? We've learned that we are responsible for each other and we just learned that we all stumble in many ways. The second thing we're going to learn about Paul's time in Antioch is that our sins impact others. Our sins impact others. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, Paul says, acted hypocritically 
along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In this verse, Paul uses the term hypocrisy to describe Peter's actions. Now, the Greek word for hypocrisy means to answer from under, to answer from under. This word paints a vivid picture of ancient actors who would speak from behind a mask while they were performing. In essence, these actors would cover up their real identity with the character they were portraying. And this word is used by Paul to describe Peter's actions. By pulling away from Gentile believers, Peter was masking his genuine convictions, hiding his real feelings and thoughts, and instead playing a role that was inconsistent with what he believed. Things get even worse for Peter. Look at verse 13 again. It says, and the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jewish Christian, that is, acted hypocritically along with him. This is where it gets crazy. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas? Peter's hypocrisy didn't just impact him. It created a domino effect leading many other Jewish Christians down the path of hypocrisy. And Peter's actions were so impactful, Paul says that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Yes, even Barnabas. And this is talking about the same Barnabas who played a leading role in taking the gospel to Gentiles. This is the same Barnabas who became the first pastor of the multi-ethnic church in Antioch. How could Barnabas, after all of his experiences and convictions falter now, he of all people should have known better Like Peter, the weight of the moment, the charged emotions led even him to act against his core beliefs. And so along with the rest of the Jewish Christians, Barnabas was guilty of hypocrisy, which was behavior inconsistent with what they believed. Now, here's the takeaway for all of us. Every choice we make, especially the ones we think that are private or insignificant, can have profound implications on those around us. For real. Just like Peter's decision influenced even people like Barnabas, our decisions can influence and impact our family, our friends, our colleagues, and even strangers. This incident between Paul and Peter 
serves as a stark reminder that our sins or even mere missteps aren't isolated events. They reverberate within communities and they impact others. This is a wake-up call for all of us. We must recognize the weight our actions carry. Our choices always impact more than just ourselves. And so how are you living? How are you living? Who are you when nobody is around? How you're living will not just impact you, but it will impact others. Seriously. Dear husbands, when you regularly choose friends or hobbies over spending quality time with your wife, it will leave you out of touch with her feelings and needs. Wives constantly pointing out faults or jokingly putting down your husband doesn't just hurt in the moment. Over time, this is what it will do. It can erode his self-confidence, shaping the way he engages with others. Dads, remember that consistently working long hours and being absent from your family doesn't just take a toll on you, it deeply affects your family too. Moms, understand that when you constantly compare yourself to other moms or your kids to their peers, you're not only putting pressure on yourself, but also you are placing a weight of expectation on your children. They feel it, even if they don't show it. Single members of our church family, when you isolate yourself, and I know you love your alone time, when you isolate yourself or put off engaging in your church community, it deprives the community of your unique gifts, insights, and presence. Day in engaged couples, remember that your relationship and boundaries don't just affect you, they affect others as well. Whoever you are, wherever you are, know that your actions and whatever you do doesn't just take a toll, doesn't just impact you, but it impacts others as well. And so where are you at? How are you living? Thomas Schreiner again says this, none of us lives a solitary life. Our sins always have an effect on others. 
and all of us as Christians live in society with other believers. We are the body of Christ, not merely individual entities. Our sins in private affect others, even if we do not see how that can be so. St. Augustine says, when we stray from God's path, we don't just lose our way, we lead others astray too. And lastly, Charles Spurgeon says this, our failures dim the light of Christ. We're called to shine, making the path murky for others. And so Paul's time in Antioch has helped us see that we're responsible for each other. We all stumble in many ways, and our sins impact others. Lastly, Paul's time in Antioch reminds us of our need, not just for the gospel, but to live out the gospel. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This particular part of the verse helps us know exactly how Paul opposed Peter. He confronted him. And he reminded him that his actions are, are not personal and doesn't only affect him and others around him, but his actions, his actions are out of step with the gospel. By withdrawing from Gentile believers... Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish Christians were, in a sense, undermining the very heart of the gospel. And so Paul says to them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Previously, Peter had freely mingled and ate with Gentiles. However, he separated himself. And doing so, this is what he was indirectly communicating. He was indirectly communicating to everyone that they needed to adopt Jewish customs to be accepted by God. It was a gospel issue. Whenever we sin, whenever we live lives that are not in step with what believe, it's ultimately a gospel issue. This also reminds us of the need and the importance to not only know the gospel, 
but actually live it out. This is what tends to happen. We tend to view the gospel as just the basics, right? And we often view it as a stepping stone to like bigger and more complex theological themes. Um, We want to learn about eschatology. We want to learn about all of these big doctrines. But when it comes to the gospel, oh yeah, the gospel's milk. Don't have time for milk. The gospel's for those people that need Jesus. This outlook of the gospel cannot be further from the truth because the truth is, Christian, you never get beyond the gospel. You never graduate or advance from the gospel. The gospel is not just for your birth as a Christian, but the gospel is for your entire Christian life. The gospel is for life. Tim Keller captures this truth in this way. He says, The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. The gospel is not only the thing that saves you from sin, but it makes you more and more like your Savior. And so above all else, this incident between Paul and Peter is reminding us of our need for the gospel, to know the gospel and live it out. And this is important. Think about this. Think about this. A lot of the time, if we are thinking that the gospel is just something we intellectually know and don't need to live out, we're basically functioning like someone who goes out, gets a gym membership or something. Gym membership, has the card, takes it home, reads all about the workouts they can do at the gym, and then they just sit there. And for months and for years, they don't even go to the gym. (laughs) Oh, if you've done that, I'm sorry to call you out. (laughs) Having a gym membership and knowledge about fitness doesn't automatically make you fit. It's the daily discipline of working out that brings transformation. Similarly, merely knowing the gospel doesn't transform us. Living it out daily does. Living out the gospel. And this is why we still need the gospel. As we've gone through the passage and we've talked about how we all stumble and fall, and we've talked about how our sins impact each other, what's going to give you hope? What's going to restore you? If you are here and you're very much like, man, I am here this morning and I'm just like Peter. I have failed miserably. 
My sins are impacting me, having an adverse effect on me, and my sins are having an effect on people I love. What's going, where are you going to get your hope from? Your hope has to come from the gospel. You need to be reminded that despite your sins, despite the ways you fail miserably, despite the many times you let God down, yourself down, and people down, despite how wrecked your life is, God accepts you Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's why you need the gospel, Christian. That's why the gospel is for life. That's why this incident and so much of scripture points us to Christ. Because in Christ, we are saved and we are unconditionally loved by God, even though we are wretched and sinners. And so we need to live out the gospel. And so the last question is, how do we do that? First, I would say prioritize relationship with God. Spend regular time in prayer, worship, and reading. These are all basics. To live out the gospel, you've got to spend time knowing the gospel. God, the gospel is all about God. And so spend time reading and worship and prayer. The next thing, way to um, live out the gospel is to embrace grace. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the truth that salvation comes through grace, not by works. Uh, Martin Luther um, said this. He said, he basically said, what we need to do is continue to beat the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves. And he goes, we need to just beat it into our heads. Something like that. I may have butchered it, but he did say something similar. Number three, Engage with the church. Participate in the local church. The community of believers plays a pivotal role in your spiritual growth and offers support, encouragement, and opportunities to serve. If you are here and you are flaky with your involvement in church, get plugged in. Don't blame. Stop making excuses. Commit to a local church because it will help you live out the gospel. Stay teachable. Recognize that spiritual growth is a lifelong journey. Be open to correction and instruction. Earlier we talked about our calling to rebuke. But we also need to talk about our calling to receive correction and rebuke. Number five, how can you live out the gospel? Seek accountability. Surround yourself with fellow believers who can encourage you, correct you when needed, and help you stay on the gospel path. And lastly, how do we live out the gospel? We share the gospel. Evangelism is a crucial part of living out the gospel. Look for opportunities to share the message of Christ
And so we are called to live out the gospel. And so this morning, we have learned from Paul's time in ancient Antioch that we as Christians are responsible for each other. We all stumble in many ways. Our sin impacts others, and we need to live out the gospel. And so, church, as we move forward, may our lives be a reflection of the love, grace, and truth found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we this morning are humbled by the depth of your word. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are... We are responsible for one another and we are called to bear each other's burdens and uplift one another. God, we confess that we all stumble. We acknowledge our weakness and imperfections and we pray for you to empower us so that we may live out the gospel in our lives. Lord, in every moment, may we strive to live out the gospel, not just in words, but in deeds, not just in worship, but in the very fabric of our daily lives. So God, as we step out today, remind us, remind us of the gospel, remind us of what Jesus Christ has done, and may we glory in him and in him alone. And in his name we pray. Amen.